So thanks for coming back. I'm going to do a bit of review from what we talked about last time. And then we are in the middle of sort of making a biblical case, a, a case from the text of scripture itself for universalism. Ideally, we'd get through that and a theolo- more of a theological case, so more of a sort of logic philosophy. I'm going to guess we won't have time to do that as well. So then in two weeks, so we're not meeting next week. Next week, I'm doing a wedding. In two weeks, we will meet and do some like, what about sort of passages and arguments and questions and and then kind of wrap up from there. I as I've been preparing, it's been very evident to me like, oh man, three weeks. It wasn't it wasn't enough. But it's also a good discipline to limit it to three weeks and not not make this take like a 10-week course or something like that. So by way of review, we kind of gave I gave a picture of the Venn diagram of that there are Christians who are not universalist. Most of them, in fact, there are universalists who are not Christians, and we are talking about the Venn diagram meeting of the two. We gave some definitions and clarification that this is a this is Christian universalism because it does depend on Christ's work. There is still an element of necessity for God to move lovingly on humanity's behalf in order for all of us to get to to be saved, to enjoy God's presence, and to not self-destruct as a species. And some folks don't experience that salvation today, but the opportunity to experience that will continue to be offered to people for all eternity. And the the great hope of Christian universalism is that everyone will ultimately experience unity, union with God by their own free will, because free will is with the the assumption that we were created with an end, with a purpose, and that is for union with God. Gave the definition of apokatastasis, this Greek word that means the renewal of things to their either original or final state. And this this comes from from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. Acts 3.21 says that Jesus must remain in heaven until the restoration of all things about which God spoke long ago through his holy prophets. And then we started making this biblical case for universalism. So we started with the Hebrew scriptures, this idea that God's salvific work is global. Isaiah 42 and 49 and 66 talk about all people, all nations, all tongues coming to see the glory of God and worshiping God, being part of the covenant with Israel, that justice will come to all nations and all people. We talked about lamentations, that the steadfast love of God never ceases. God does not reject forever. God has compassion. He does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. And then we've gotten to the Christian scriptures. We didn't make it too terribly far, but we talked about the he or the Greek word ionios, which is usually mistranslated as eternal or forever, thanks to some accidents of translation throughout the centuries and the influence of the King James Version. And ionios is used by Jesus to refer to things like fire and punishment. But a Christian universalist is going to trust the scholarship of of Greek scholars who say Ionios 
does not mean forever or without end. It means either otherworldly or of an age, capital A, G, E, and age, meaning a certain epic, a certain age of the universe. So Ionios fire, Ionios punishment is not eternal without end punishment, but the punishment or fire or discipline of a certain epic or age or time span of, of the world. There is a word that means eternal, udias, with a D and not an N. And that's only ever used to refer to life and, yeah, good things, God's eternal power, that sort of thing. But death and punishment and fire, those are always ionion, this otherworldly, other age sort of thing. And then I think where we stopped, I think I made note of this, but if not, this is sort of our picking up from where we left off. Mark 9, 49, Jesus is talking about this Ionios fire, this otherworldly fire. And Jesus points out that the purpose of this purification is for everyone. So Jesus says in Mark 9, if your sin, if you're sorry, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. For it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm never dies, the fire is never quenched. And then verse 49, for everyone, Jesus says, everyone will be salted with fire. And this is where I'll I'll just get on a little soapbox for a second. So much of Christian preaching, teaching, writing, thinking over the past few centuries has assumed that Jesus is constantly talking about the afterlife. And I think this is a categorical mistake that Jesus talks about this worldly sort of stuff uh, far, far, far more often than we may have been told. This happens first and foremost with people's understanding of the phrase, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of God is like all of Jesus's parables. And at least in the preaching that I grew up with, this was always about the world to come, the afterlife, or just a fancy way of saying heaven, the place you go to, the place your soul goes to when you die. But Jesus's message was very much not otherworldly. The kingdom of heaven is at hand was about what was happening here on earth. Jesus talks about if I do miracles through the through the power of the Father, then the kingdom kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is in you. Kingdom of heaven is Matthew 6 sort of stuff, the, the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So then preaching is not so much about, hey, here's how you can pray a prayer and make sure that your soul goes to this other place when you die. Preaching is much more about how can we be part of this kingdom of God, this rule, reign, dominion of God today here on earth. So that's true about kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, that sort of stuff. It is also true about how God or how Jesus talks about the 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 not so bright side of these things and that would be hell or gehenna that is also much more about this worldly this life sort of things than otherworldly other life sort of things now that's all kind of by way of summary I'll get more into gehenna in just a second well I I do want to pause just for a few moments of any sort of Q&A or comment after that bit of review things that maybe were left hanging last week and I feel like I've got a bit more time to maybe respond to some Q&A this week so if you got anything burning no pun intended go ahead and ask can I can I ask just a, for a point of clarification I'm curious how it fits into and 
to be fair, I don't have like the exact, but I'm 99% sure Jesus talks about it. Anyways, like the separation of the of the goats and the sheep, and I and connecting that, I always thought like to like the the final judgment. I don't know why I put it in quotes, but I'm not sure if he explicitly talks about it in terms of a final judgment or if that's somewhere else. But the idea of a final judgment and connecting to what you're talking about as far as like the hermeneutic of Jesus teaching. Yeah, yeah, that's good. All right, so you're talking Matthew 25, parable of the sheep and the goats. And this is a great example of just like a complete mind frame shift for what Jesus is talking about. So Matthew 25, and uh, make sure this is accurate. So Matthew 24, go back a chapter, we get what's called the Olivet Discourse, which is where Jesus talks about the, at least in a lot of the Bibles that are sitting in a box somewhere, some old Bibles, talks about the end of the world. By the way, I have my I have my bookshelf that has my 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 day-to-day Bibles, and then I have my storage Bibles. That that's the kind of person I am. So Matthew 24, the the Jesus leaves the temple, he's in Jerusalem, he leaves the temple, his disciples come and point out to him the temple buildings. Look, look how great these buildings are. And then Jesus says, Hey, you see all these things? I assure you, no stone will be left on another, everything will be demolished. And Again, in the teaching and preaching I grew up with, this was about the end of the world, sort of rapture, tribulation, theology, the things that would happen sometime in my lifespan, usually was the way that this was framed. But if you actually read the chapter, the I don't, I don't know. That's just wrong. Like it's just not what that chapter is about. Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple, which happens within a generation of Jesus's death. And many of Jesus's disciples, not just the 12, but the 70 and the 400, all these people following Jesus, live to see the destruction of the temple. You'll hear about wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. These things will happen, but it's not the end yet. Nations and kingdoms will fight against each other. There'll be famines. All of these are just the beginnings of the sufferings of associated with the end. And that phrase, the end, gets associated with the end of time. But Jesus is answering a question about the destruction of the temple. When you see the, this translation calls it the disgusting and destructive thing that Daniel talked about standing in the holy place, the abomination, the desolation of abomination, then those in Judea must escape to the mountains. And Jesus is giving this practical advice. Hey, if you live in Judea, Galilee, Palestine, and you see Rome coming, you should run away. Now, this is not what many of Jesus's kinfolk did. They made a a last stand in Jerusalem, and many, many of them died. And we'll get to that in just a few moments. There'll be great suffering. No one will be rescued. And... Then, now immediately after the suffering of that time, the sun will become dark and the moon won't give its lights. The stars will fall from the sky. The planets and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And then this is what gets associated with the end of time. Then the sign of the the son of man will appear in the sky. And at that time, all the tribes of the earth will be full of sadness and they'll see the son of man coming in the heavenly clouds with power and great splendor. He will send his angels with the sound of a great trumpet. They'll gather his chosen ones from the four corners of the earth, from one end of the sky to another. So this passage, again, usually associated with like rapture, end of time sort of stuff. We don't have time to get into all of it today, but this passage is, Jesus is quoting Daniel 9, and the the Son of Man coming in the heavenly clouds is not about Jesus coming down to earth, the second coming, 
It's about the son of man ascending to the ancient of days, the the God almighty figure in Daniel 9. Yeah. So what biblical scholars argue is that this passage, the sun becomes dark, the moon won't give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the planets and other heavenly bodies will be shaken, is prophetic apocalyptic language that sort of condenses Jesus's death and resurrection with the destruction of Jerusalem into one apocalyptic image. And this is like, this is very common language that prophets would use for huge momentous things that would happen. It's not literal language. Oh, the sun will become dark. The moon won't give its light. Maybe you've heard of Christian television talking about blood red moons and things like that. No, this is the way that prophets would use apocalyptic language to describe historical events. And if you go and read some of the accounts of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 or the massacre at Masada of the Jews in the second century, the 100s, this is the language that they used to describe what was happening to them. It was as if the sun became dark and the moon wouldn't give its light, as if stars were falling from the sky. So Jesus is using this language for his own death, resurrection, and the destruction of Jerusalem. It is a new era. It is a new epic. It is a new, Paul uses the language, the the culmination of the ages where this is all happening. Okay, now that's a bunch of pre-work to get to Matthew 25, parable of the sheep and the goats. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 young bridesmaids who took their lamps and went out to meet a groom, and five of them were wise and five were foolish. The foolish ones took their lamps but didn't bring oil. The wise one took their lamps and brought extra oil. The groom was late in coming. They became drowsy, fell asleep, and at midnight there was a cry, look, the groom, come out to meet them. All those bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps, but the foolish bridesmaids said to the wise one, please give us some of your oil. The lamps have gone out. But the wise bridesmaids replied, no, if we share with you, there won't be enough for our lamps. We have a better idea. Go and get your own oil. (laughs) This parable is not about the end of time. It's not about the second coming of Jesus. It is about the first coming of the Messiah and about the destruction of Jerusalem. Be prepared. Then there's another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who leaves on a trip and he called his servants and handed his possessions over them. Then there's a third parable. Now, When the Son of Man comes in his majesty and all his messengers or angels are with him, he will sit on his majestic throne and all the nations will be gathered in front of them. He will separate them from each other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. In gospel language, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John language, the Son of Man on his throne is language for the cross. The Son of Man on his throne is not a judgment scene where Jesus is enthroned in the sort of literal sense, the gospels always associate throne language with the cross. We see this when uh, James and John, the, the, the sons of thunder, in one account, they ask in a different account, their mom asks, hey, G- hey, Jesus, when you come in your glory, will you let my son sit on your left and on your right? And Jesus says, it's not for me to decide. And you don't know what you're asking because somebody else has decided who's going to sit on my left and my right when I come in glory. And that's the two thieves on the other other crosses. So we get this image of the sheep and the goats. It's not about second coming. It's not about the end of time. It is, again, this prophetic way of collapsing about a 40-year span into one moment where 
you get the cross, you get the destruction of Jerusalem, you get the nations being judged through what's going to happen over the next 40 years. And this is this is this is a good rule of thumb. And N.T. Wright says this, and I agree with him. Jesus doesn't talk about his second coming. He just doesn't. It is not a topic that comes up in Jesus's preaching. And it kind of makes sense because the disciples have a particularly if you read the Gospel of Mark, which is very harsh to the disciples, the disciples can't get it through their heads that Jesus is the Messiah in the first place, that there was even a first coming. So the idea that Jesus is spending any time trying to talk about the second coming when they haven't even understood the first one yet is would be bad pedagogy from Jesus's point. So that is a very long-winded answer, Chris, to your question of the sheep and the goats parable. I don't think is about the end of the world. I think it's about what happens from Jesus's crucifixion on forward to about AD 70 and the, and the destruction of Jerusalem. Again, we get this... In, the ending of the parable, I assure you that what you haven't done to the least of these, you haven't done it for me. And they will go away into my translation in front of me, eternal punishment, and the righteous ones will go into eternal life. I don't think we should translate that eternal. It is Ionios punishment, Ionios life, the punishment of the age and the life of the age. And for those who took care of folks as if they were caring for Jesus, who listened to all the prior verses before about the parable of the the women and their oil and the destruction of the temple and fleeing in Judea, then yeah, they will have the life of the age. They will not be destroyed by the invading armies of Rome and General Titus, eventually Emperor Titus, who destroys Jerusalem. And those and in Jesus's mind, he's talking about the Sadducees and the, a little bit of the Pharisees and the Zealots and everyone who is fomenting revolution. Then, yeah, they're going to be destroyed. And I will tell you exactly where they're going to be destroyed in just a moment. Is that helpful at all, Chris? I know that was a lot. And definitely helpful. It's a lot to like wrap my mind around. It is a lot to wrap your mind yeah. around. Yeah. yeah. But no, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and like we're 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 universalism adjacent right now. Okay, so you can go and read some N.T. Wright being the foremost, but other Jesus scholars, New Testament scholars, gospel scholars, and they will tell you essentially what I just said: that Jesus was a a prophet to his people in his century in his geography. And giving a warning about what was going to happen in 40 years, and that we should read the parables with that in mind. Now, that's not to say that the parables then lose all value, because all of Scripture has this, this gets into my my views on the inspiration of Scripture. All the Scripture was written to a particular time, people, and context, and yet still communicates truth to, to us today. Old Testament scholar John Walton, Genesis, he's a Genesis guy, and he says, Scripture was not written to us, but it was written for us. It was written to a particular set of people in particular circumstances. We get to glean the riches of that scripture, but we should not be so arrogant to assume that it is written to our specific circumstance. All right. Any, anything else? All right. So Jesus talks about hell, what's often translated in our scripture as hell. This is the word Gehenna. And like in that 
Mark 9 verse I read a little bit earlier. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. I think this this is an accurate statement. In every case that Jesus talks about hell, he's using the word Gehenna. Gehenna is a a alliteration uh, into Greek of a Hebrew word, M, which is the Valley of Hinnom. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the Valley of Hinnom is a place where child sacrifice happened. And I've got some references in my notes that I'll pass on to you tomorrow. But 2 Chronicles 28, Jeremiah 7 and 19, 2 Kings 23, these all refer to the, the valley of Hena, Hena, and child sacrifice happening there, particularly to deity, god, or practice called Molech, where you would go sacrifice your child to get Molech on your side. And there's also, I think it's the king of Judah, Josiah, has some religious reforms for Judah in the Old Testament, where he destroys these places of child sacrifice in the Valley of Hinnom. It's just outside Jerusalem. There's a couple different places where scholars, archaeologists believe where it is, but there's just a couple places that scholars generally agree where you'd find it. And eventually it becomes like the, as the British would say, the tip, the the dump, the the landfill, the place where you would take your, your refuge and often burn it. During the intertestamental period, so those 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, Hebrew Bible, Christian scriptures, it became known as a place of divine judgment. And it did get associated with death, punishment, and resurrection. And we don't have the time to talk about Jewish views on the afterlife, but I will say that around the time of Jesus and a little bit after, the vehicle and rabbinical Judaism did have concepts of like a hell, a place of punishment. But the rabbi's view was you would go there for a limited period of time. If you were especially bad, maybe a year. And then you would end up on the positive place, the, the good place. So anyway, brief aside. So yeah, Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom did become associated with a place of divine judgment, death punishment, and also, but it was still this physical place that you could go and take your trash. Then 70 CE or 80, 70, however you want to call it, 30 or 40 years after the time of Jesus, the Jewish leaders revolt. And Rome says, no, you can't do that. Sends, I'm saying General Titus. I am 95% sure that's true, but all of a sudden I'm doubting myself. Yes, yes, it is Titus. He leads the siege of Jerusalem and eventually Jerusalem falls, is destroyed, and the temple is taken apart brick by brick, just like Jesus said it would. And all of the dead bodies. We have a testament from Josephus, a Jewish historian. All of them were thrown into the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, where they were burned as corpses. So Jesus's words about being burned, the punishment of the age, the Ionios punishment and fire come true, just like Jesus said they would where Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is taken apart brick by brick, and all of the violent revolters, yeah, the large, large majority of them are burned in the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. So again, Jesus's words about what has been passed on to many of us as the afterlife 
have very this worldly implications. But thanks to accidents of translations, that word gets translated as hell and then gets passed on as this tradition about the afterlife, though I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about at all. Uh, And again, we can thank the King James Bible and its predecessors for that misunderstanding. All right. Questions, comments there. I see your question, Antonio. I'll get to that in a sec. Okay. So again, I'm still kind of trying to make this biblical case for universalism. And and what we're doing right now is trying to figure out what to do with Jesus's words on on this topic. And my long story short is... When you see the word forever or eternal coming out of the mouth of Jesus, it's Ionios. So I don't think it means eternal or forever. Two, when you see the word hell in your English translations coming out of the mouth of Jesus, it's the word Gehenna, which is a literal physical valley where thousands upon thousands of Jews are going to literally be massacred and burned in 30 to 40 years. So that's all something that you got to keep in mind with this. Antonio is raising the question of the Abraham's bosom. This comes from a story of Jesus, Lazarus and the rich and the poor man. I'm sorry, Lazarus and the rich man, which is in Luke 16. And in Luke 16, we get to begin with, we get Jesus talking about faithfulness with money. And Jesus says, if you haven't been faithful with worldly wealth, Who's going to trust you with true riches? If you haven't been faithful to someone else's property, who's going to give you your own? And he's speaking specifically to Pharisees at this moment. The Pharisees, who are money lovers, heard all this and sneered at Jesus. And then Jesus tells a story. There was a certain rich man, clothed himself in purple, fine linen, and he feasted luxuriously every day. At his gate lay a certain man named Lazarus, who longed to eat the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. The poor man died, was carried by angels to Abraham's book. So we do get some afterlife talk here from Jesus. And what Jesus is doing is he is referring to common Jewish sort of folklore, folk story of the afterlife, this idea of Abraham's bosom. Abraham, of course, is the patriarch, the father of the Israelites. And the idea, and this was really developed during the exile, was that one died and went to Sheol, or the grave. This is the Hebrew word Sheol, grave, pit. And prior to the exile, the idea was that Sheol was just basically a place of unconsciousness. You don't really get references to resurrection or a conscious afterlife until deep into the exile. And I I could show you some verses in the Psalms in particular, Job, that talks about if anybody goes down to Sheol, no use to you there, God. No one can praise you or say anything good about you from the grave because you're unconscious. You can't, you're you're just dead. Then Book of Daniel, we begin to get a reference to resurrection. And then in that intertestamental period, we begin to get references to Sheol having two sides to it. So there's the Abraham's bosom side, the, the side of Abraham. You are resting or sleeping with your fathers. And you see these kinds of references throughout the Old Testament. He, he laid with his fathers. He was put to rest with his fathers. But there begins to begin this like sense that like, oh, it's you're conscious. You're aware of, of what's happening. So there's Abraham's bosom. And then there is the the bad side, which we see the rich man experiencing in Jesus's story here. The rich man also died and was buried and was being tormented in the place of the dead. And Jews began to use Hades 
sometimes to refer to this bad place. Now, Greeks, Greeks and Romans, they also had a, a Hades, but Hades was also just a generic word for the place everyone went to when they died. And it only later began associated with like flames and torment. But yeah, Jews had this kind of folk understanding of Abraham's bosom as the good place, Hades, or just the other side of Sheol as the bad place. But again, if you read through this story, some call it a parable of Jesus about the rich man and Lazarus, there's no reference to Gehenna. Gehenna does not show up as, as a place in here. It's just the place of the dead where the rich man is being tormented. And then you have to have like a sort of biblical scholarship conversation of, is Jesus using a folk understanding of the afterlife to make a point? Because the main point is about the use of money. Or by Jesus using this folk understanding, is he endorsing it as an accurate representation? And that's a that's a hard question to answer to to know for certain. All right, how are we doing? Good, good. All right, all right. So we dealt with some of the difficult words of Jesus and some of the harder to understand things in in the Gospels. Let me lay out a few more references. Again, we're still in this kind of making a biblical case. Book of John, the Gospel of John. Duh has its own sort of language for these sorts of things. So Matthew, Mark, Luke are kind of of a set in case. You, yeah, just so you know, most scholars think that Mark was written first and then Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source and then added their own material from other, I would say, other eyewitnesses, other other testimony. I don't think they made it up. And then John is written later and kind of comes at, does not use Mark as a source. So it has its own language, its own kind of way of talking about things. So again, this backs up to maybe our first week. What would it mean for us to go at reading scripture instead of with the assumption that there's this eternal, this place where people go for all eternity to suffer? What if we go at it from the assumption that there's not that place? So listen to John 3, 16 and 17 with that in mind. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. In God, indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, you listen to that from a infernalist or hellist position, and you assume some level of exclusivity to that. Oh, it's only everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. It's that, that the world might be saved through him. Or you could read it from a more optimistic point of view. God loved the world and did not condemn the world, but sent the Son so the world might be saved. That has some pretty universalistic sense to it. John 12, 47. Jesus says, I do not judge anyone who hears my words and does not keep them. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. This resonates with some, is it Romans, Romans 8? Therefore, there is no condemnation. And this also resonates with 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, that says, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is, atone, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And this is what 1 John says, 1 John 2, 2, and not for our sins only, 
but also for the sins of the whole world. This, by the way, friends, so I worked at a like a Calvinistic Reformed church for 10 years, and this is why I could never go along with Calvinistic theology. Calvinistic theology says that atonement is limited, that Jesus's death was not for everyone, but only for the elect, the predestined. And I just can't go along with that because it's just so, just so goes against the opposite of what scripture says. Jesus Christ, the righteous is our advocate. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. I don't know how you can come up with a theological system that says, yeah, but Jesus only died for the elect, not for everyone. I don't know how you can come up with that. All right. Continuing with John, John 12, 31 and 32, Jesus says, now this is the judgment. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world, and Jesus is referring to Satan here, the ruler of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, and this is a reference to crucifixion being put up on a cross, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. One translator, David Mintley Hart, translates this as I will drag all people to myself. The word draw, he argues, is not quite strong enough language. So again, what's your assumption? Is that just hyperbole? Or when Jesus says, I will draw all people to myself, does all mean all? John 17, Father, Jesus is praying to the Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you since you have given him every human being to give eternal life to every being you have given him. Again, that's very universalistic language. You have given the son every human being to give eternal life to every being you have given him. It's a very roundabout way of saying eternal life to every human being. And then Jesus actually defines Ionios life for us. Again, our translations say this is eternal life, but again, the Greek word is Ionios. This is Ionios life, colon, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So we get a definition of eternal life, of Ionios life, to know who God is and to know Jesus. And yeah, that John 17, one and two is about the most universalistic of texts that you can get. You have given him every human being to give eternal life to every being you have given him. All right. Any comments or thoughts or questions on John specifically? So can you talk about Ionios and that word? Just we've talked in a few times about where it where it means of another age. And I'm just trying to wrap my head around, like we generally interpret that as eternal in the in the good way, right? But if we're saying that doesn't mean eternal in the cases where we where it's eternal condemnation, what does it mean here if it's Ionias and not eternal in the way we think of it or have previously yeah. thought of it? Yeah, 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 yeah. So again, think of Ionias as a word about quality versus quantity. And you could apply Ionias to different things and it's and it's going to modify those different things in different ways. I'm trying to think of a good, good example here. Think of the word extreme. You could apply the word extreme to lots of different things. And extreme it by itself doesn't necessarily mean good, doesn't necessarily mean bad. It probably depends on what you're talking about. Extreme pain tells you the sorts of pain that you're dealing with. Very bad. Extreme sports doesn't mean very bad sports. It means 
more intense, more likely to use marijuana, like whatever. Extreme speed, computer processors use the word extreme a lot. Like that's how Ionios works. Ionios life is a good thing. Ionios destruction, Ionios fire is probably something you want to avoid. So that's how I think of it. Is that is that helpful? You're, you're, no. Not really. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I guess I'm still trying to figure out like how to conceptualize what that what that means, what that looks like. You know, we talked about Ionia's fire being a purification process. So yeah. Ionia's life, like what is that? You know, if, if maybe it doesn't, if, if we can't necessarily directly translate as eternal, like what does that look like then? Yeah. So we have other, and uh, you're going to have to give me a second to pull these up. We have other passages that explain what eternal life or life after death for Jesus followers looks like. Let's see if I can find something quickly. Uh, I'm not going to find it quickly. We like the only, it's not that like the word Ionios is the only thing we know about life with God after we die. We have, oh, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us all sorts of things about our bodies being incorruptible or not susceptible to de- decay and death. So we know those sorts of things. We know from Revelation and the new heavens and the new earth, there's no more pain, there's no more tears, there's no more sorrow. So we have other descriptors as well. I Maybe the the way one Greek scholar, Alaria uh, Ramelli, just uh, it translates Ionios as otherworldly. Now, otherworldly maybe has been tainted by if you watch too much like X Files or History Channel or something like that. But she, yeah, she just means it of like something, something beyond this life. And in that case, I think it does work as a pretty good word for translation: otherworldly fire, otherworldly life, otherworldly destruction, otherworldly, even God, God is eternal. God is otherworldly from us. And then you have to fill in the details with other things that we know about an otherworldly God, a Ionios God. Well, what is otherworldly about God? No, God is loving, patient, kind, all of those sorts of things. Are we getting closer? Kind of, but I guess I just, I, so for, you know, previously we were talking about it meaning of an age, right? Yeah. 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 And so and we were talking about it maybe, you know, in the punishment sense, maybe being like of an age, you know, they like they'd be killed and punished in that age. Right. So I guess I'm wondering, like, are we if we apply that same logic, could it also be pertaining to like sort of of this age, maybe meaning more of this life, maybe maybe meaning not otherworldly at all? I, You know. Yeah. 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 I think there I think it's probably good to keep in mind that there are two two ages in mind, and they are not of the same quality. So the destruction of the age, if we were to use that translation, is not is not forever, is not everlasting, is not timeless. But the life of the age is. The life of the age, we know from 1 Corinthians 15, other passages, the life of the age is not susceptible to decay, is not susceptible to corruption. It no longer has a curse, has no sorrow or pain. So it has, there are two ages, destruction of the age, life of the age, but they have different qualities. I have a question. Yeah. So I feel like the passage in John, especially like John 3, 16, that you just talked about with sort of a universalist lens, what I struggle with is that it feels like 
the preferences of God are really emphasized there. Like it's his, like their God's will that none should perish. But we also know sort of based on like our current experience of, of, of God in this sort of age, that his preferences always do not get actualized. Yeah, that's so, true. Yeah, I would love to hear that tension. Yeah, 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 that's true. But yeah, there was a podcast. I was I was this close to recommending it to this class and then I backed away from it because it was it was making a case for universalism, but one of its main arguments was that God does always get what he wants. And I don't agree with that because I think that's a form of sort of like fatalism. And then my understanding of God's will is that God does not always get what God wants. If, if, well, not if, when, when my friend got cancer, I don't believe I have to say, oh, God wanted that to happen. It's part of God's plan. No, I have to, I, I believe that is a aberration from what God intended for my friend's life and that God is capable of squeezing good out of it, bringing good from it but not that God intended that. So yeah, this podcast was making an argument of like, yes, God ultimately, God is sovereign. And by sovereign, we mean everything that happens, happens according to God's will. And therefore, because God is loving, kind, just, and all of that, that will lead to the salvation of all. And I, yeah, I was, I was uncomfortable with that sort of argument. So my kind of dance, dancing on my feet here, but my best response to that is, we are given free will within this world to make our own choices, to pursue ours and others' pleasure, pursue the good in ours and others' lives to the extent that is physic- we're physically capable of. I also believe that our perceptions of what is good are bent or twisted. This is the theological idea of depravity, that in some ways we are depraved of knowing what is perfectly good and right and true. But what we are not free to do is to sort of rewrite our baseline foundational underlying code to pursue pursue the good, pursue happiness or pursue pleasure. There is no way in which I can act in, in which I am, oh, whatever I do, I'm doing it because I think it's the the best thing to do, even things that I know will harm me. Even if we think of like mental illness or whatever, there is still this baseline code level assumption. I'm doing this because it's the, what I think is best for me, even if what what I think is best for me is sick, twisted, depraved, whatever. So knowing that I do believe that if God's pursuit of humanity is unrelenting and God's mercy endures forever, then in the end, all people will, by their own free will, come to, come back to God. I need to I need to like firm up my language on this to make it more helpful and understandable. But yeah, in a you know after death, if I am not limited by the failures of my body, the failures of my mind or brain, and I've had, and there's a, there's actually a church father who makes this argument. I have to find the quote, but have had like re, what is true about reality revealed to me, then a rational creature, every rational creature will eventually come to union with God. Does that make sense? And, and God is not overriding someone's free will to make that happen. 
No, that's helpful. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. All right. We've got 17 minutes left, which is not enough time, but we're going to try to talk about Paul here. Paul is the longest section of my notes are, are the passages on Paul because Paul is our most strident, ardent universalist in the New Testament. And if you think about it, it depends on how familiar you are with, with your Bibles. But if you think about Paul, Paul doesn't talk about hell. It's just, well, what, okay, we didn't, we didn't talk about Acts. The Acts doesn't talk about hell either. You don't get any sort of modern gospel presentation that says, make a decision for Jesus to avoid hell. You just don't get that sort of language at all. We get the Acts 3, Jesus must remain in heaven until the restoration of all things. And you, you get that. And, and then Paul, yeah, you just don't get hell language at all. And instead, you get these sort of logic statements by Paul. Paul's very logical writes in this very rhetorical way. And here's some examples. Romans 3, we get this famous verse that says, there's no distinction. All have sinned and have fallen short of God's glory, which I don't know about you, but this was part of my sort of growing up, the, the Romans road to salvation. And people would quote Romans 3.23 at me or anybody, maybe a gospel track or something like that. All have, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. But then they didn't read verse 24. But all are treated as righteous freely by God's grace because of a ransom that was paid by Jesus, Christ Jesus. Oh, that's interesting. And it makes the, I mean, it makes the Romans road thing seem ridiculous because the end of the Romans road was, I needed to make a decision. I needed to, you know, declare my allegiance to Jesus in order to be saved. But that's not what Romans 3 says. All have sinned and all are present tense, are treated as righteous freely by the grace of Jesus. Interesting. Romans 5 says, Romans 5, 18 and 19. Now, the righteous requirements necessary for life are met for everyone through the righteous act of one person, just as judgment fell on everyone through the failure of one person. So Paul's laying out this theology that says, because the sin of Adam, all are considered unrighteous. That's a whole different conversation if that's fair or not. But that's the argument that Paul is making. In the same way, just as Jesus was righteous, that is now true of everyone. Verse 19, Romans 5, 19, many people were made righteous through the obedience of one person, just as many people were made sinners through the disobedience of one person. And Paul is using that word many to mean one, unless you want to make an argument that Adam's fall didn't cause, it just caused a portion of humanity to become unrighteous. Romans 8, 35 and 39 is the, who will separate us from Christ's love? Will we be separated by trouble, distress, harassment, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? But in all these things, we win a sweeping victory through the one who loved us. I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love in Jesus Christ, our Lord, not death or life, angels or rulers, present or future things, powers, height, depth, or anything that is created. So again, uh, we've talked a little bit about this idea of like you, you only have one opportunity in this life to choose Jesus and then you die and those opportunities aren't given anymore. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, not even death can separate us from the love of Christ. If the love of God endures forever, if God's mercy endures forever, and death cannot separate us from God's love, then why believe that death is the moment in which God character, God's character changes and ceases to offer opportunities for salvation? Romans 11. So bigger picture, Romans 9, 10, and 11 
is Paul wrestling with what is happening with his kinsfolk, the Israelites, who for the most part are rejecting Jesus as Messiah, while the Gentiles are accepting Jesus as Messiah. And this is sort of mind-blowing for Paul because Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was a Jewish Messiah while his own people rejecting Jesus. So Romans 11, Paul is sort of concluding his argument, and Paul writes, a part of Israel has become resistant until the full number, or one translation says, totality of the Gentiles comes in. In this way, all Israel will be saved. God has locked up all people in disobedience in order to have mercy on all of them. So Paul makes this argument. There's a portion of Israel that's hard-hearted or resistant to Jesus, and that's going to be the case until the totality of the Gentiles comes in, and then all Israel will be saved. You do some basic math, all Gentiles come in, all Israel will be saved, that's everybody. <laughs> and then he concludes his argument in verse 30, Romans 11, 32, God locked up all people in disobedience in order to have mercy on all of them. Again. That's everybody. Paul follows this up a few chapters later in Romans 14, and he's actually quoting Isaiah 45. As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. Now, I've heard it argued that this is coerced, sort of at gunpoint or at hell point sort of praise, but I don't know a lot of people who are going to praise God while being coerced to do so. And if you follow the logic of Romans 11, totality of Gentiles, all Israel, God locked up everyone in disobedience in order to have mercy in all of them, then Romans 14, verse 11, read in its most natural sense, every tongue will give praise to God, would be, and they're doing this because they want to. And a slightly earlier verse in Romans 2, Romans chapter 3, which I just, I think this is Paul's most humorous. What does it matter then if some people aren't faithful? The lack of their faith doesn't cancel God's faithfulness, does it? And I just think that's fantastic of like, I I can just imagine Paul arguing with a, a non-universalist. Well, some people don't, you know, won't choose God, won't choose Jesus. And Paul's like, so? That doesn't change God's character. God's going to keep coming after them. Just because some people aren't faithful doesn't mean God isn't faithful. And that's the basic argument of universalism that, yeah, some people will continue to not choose God even after death and they will, they will create a hell for themselves. But that doesn't mean that God is for that, that God created a place of infernal punishment. God will remain faithful and God will like you. The argument is you can't outrun God's faithfulness. You will eventually you will become the one exhausted, not. Paul continues the same argument that he made in Romans 5 in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, since death came through a human being, that is Adam, the resurrection of the dead came through one too. In the same way that everyone dies in Adam, so also everyone will be given life in Christ. Again, Paul Paul was being about as clear as he could possibly be. Like, what else, how else would you, what other proof would you require of Paul to be universalist if not a verse like that? Like, what else would you expect Paul to say if not in the same way that everyone dies in Adam? So also everyone will be given life in Christ. In what ways could Paul become more? First Corinthians 15 continues the next verses. Paul says, at the end, when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father, 
when he brings every form of rule, every authority and power to an end, it is necessary for him to rule until he puts all enemies under his feet, which is biblical language for saying under the rule of God. Death is the last enemy to be brought to an end since he has brought everything under control under his feet. And when it says that everything has been brought under his control, this clearly means everything except for the one who placed everything under Jesus' control. So we're getting into some Trinitarian language here. But when all things have been brought under his control, then the son himself will also be under the control of the one who gave him control over everything. So that, and this is the the verse that the church fathers and mothers just spent so much time writing and thinking about so that God may be all in all. And the church fathers and mothers in those first four centuries of Christianity took this about as literally as they could. If God would be all in all, if all of the enemies are gone, that means that all will be saved. It's, yeah, it's this beautiful image. And yeah, I, I've spent time reflecting on it as well. And it's the sort of thing that bring like makes me emotional to think about of, Every enemy, every power, every ruler, every authority, everything that's ever rebelled against God now being one in union with God. Death is the last enemy to be brought to an end. If every enemy is now, again, this sort of biblical language under his feet, under the has submitted itself to God, what does that mean for hell? Hell is empty. There's no one left to to rebel. Yes, Antonio. So I guess this sounds awesome. I mean, I really want to, and I don't know if this feels interesting to me, this sort of carve out, but I know in Jude, it talks about how hell was made for like the devil and his angels. And so it's like, and you know, of course, angels had free will. So they were in heaven. They like, at least in a traditional Christian understanding, like rebelled against God and sort of were cast out. And so does universalism that's Christ-centered even like reconvert demons to the angelic? Like, how does that yeah, just love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this is the part this is the part I cut out. But yeah, Origen, the the church father Origen, did teach in the eventual reconciliation of Satan with God, so that the the demons, which were fallen angels, and the the Satan or the devil or the chief the chief of the fallen angels would also also eventually be reconciled with God. So other church fathers and fathers and mothers didn't always agree with Origen on this particular point. So that, that this was a point of debate. How universalistic is universalism? Does it even include the devil? But it it it's not outside the question that it would even include the devil. We won't get to it today, but we've got a, I've got a section on Revelation in which we deal more explicitly with Satan language in scripture and what that means. So uh, we'll try to answer some of that. I'm sort of agnostic at this point, but 1 Corinthians 15 does seem to imply the reconciliation of everyone, that every last enemy will be brought under the rule and reign of God. Does that include the fallen angels and devil? I don't see why it wouldn't. All right, finishing up the Paul section, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ by not counting people's sins against, and back to that, like everyone in heaven and earth will, will. well, Philippians 2 says every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Reconciliation implies that this is not coerced. Reconciliation implies that if every tongue is confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, and God is doing that through the ministry of reconciliation, it's not coerced confession. It's not coerced 
praise. God is not doing this. God, God is not making people do this at gunpoint. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. This is what God has planned for the climax of all times, or another translation, the, the culmination of the ages, to bring all things together. Literally, the word is to recapitulate, to bring all things together in Christ, the things in heaven along with the things in earth. So similar to reconciliation language, which we also see in Colossians chapter 1, because the fullness of God was pleased to live in Jesus. That's Colossians 1, 18 and 20. He reconciled all things to himself through him, whether things on earth or in the heavens, he brought peace through the blood of his cross. So again, Paul, you just being hyperbolic, all things, or does all things mean all things? In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15, we get this idea of purifying fire that everyone goes through. So Paul is talking about his ministry as like a, as a church planter, apostle. He says, according to the grace of God, which was given me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and he's talking about the church in Corinth, and another, which is Apollos, is building on it. But each person must be careful how he builds, for no one can lay a foundation other than one which is laid, which is Jesus. Now, Paul says, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become evident for the day. And we have to ask, what is the day? If this means the end judgment, the day of the Lord, then Paul says, for the day will show it, this kind of bad work, for the day will show it because it's to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet only so as through fire. So Paul seems to be implying we all have our ministry. We're all building up our life's work on the day if day of the Lord and end of time sort of day. That's a good question that I'll say yes to for now, but you do have to make a case for if the, the day everyone's work goes through fire and you will be saved, but as though you have gone through fire. So again, this purifying fire idea. Yes, similar thing in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul is dealing with a, a man who has, what I would argue, is, has raped his stepmom. And Paul is saying, you need to basically kick this guy out of the church. This is nothing to celebrate. And so Paul puts it like this. He says, I have decided to turn this person over to Satan for the destruction of his body so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, this is very sort of interesting and, and bizarre language from Paul, but the implication is kick this person out of the church, turn this person over to Hasatan, the, de the deceiver, the accuser, the Satan, and their body will be destroyed. Like basically, if they don't have the protection of the church, they're probably going to die. But his spirit's going to be saved on the day of the Lord. So turning somebody over to Satan doesn't imply that they're lost forever. Their soul will still be saved. A couple more, and then we'll be done. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. This is right, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So again, we're back to the, like, we know what God wants. Does that necessarily mean it's true? Well, there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the human Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a payment to set all 
people free. And you get similar language in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Again, I just, I don't know how you read this and become a Calvinist. And... Finally, 1 Timothy 4.10, uh, Paul says, this is what we labor and strive for because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the savior of all humankind, especially of believers. And this gets to what I talked about in week one of people who believe in Jesus today get the benefits of that today. You have a relationship with God and you get to participate in the healing and formation of your soul now. That does not deny the fact that God is the savior of all humankind. That's what we just read in 1 Timothy 4.10, 10, especially of believers. So God's salvation is for everyone. All right. That was a bunch of Bible verses. I have more. We'll get to them in two weeks. Any final Q&A? Even I can just put them in my notes for next time. This might be on the topic list for two weeks from now. And I sort of asked the first week, but sort of how did we as like a, like a global church go from like the universalist camps to the minority camp? Yes. Yes. Yep. I've got that in my note to hit on. Thank you. All right. Thank you, everybody.